0: Good morning once again. Great to be together today. We are starting a new book of the Bible this morning. Last September, we began a preaching series here at Grace in the last three books of the Old Testament. So Haggai, Zechariah, and now today we come to the book of Malachi. And after spending the last four weeks looking at what it means to suffer in the Christian life and taking a pause for some spiritual disciplines and Christmas sermons. We haven't been here in the Minor Prophets for several weeks. And so today what we're going to do is take a little bit of an overview of where we've been in these last two books and then we will work our way through this massive chunk of text, uh, this first verse. Josh told me this morning, are you going to have time to read this whole text this morning? I said, I think we'll be okay. So, anyhow, Malachi is unique in many ways in the Old Testament. And even among the minor prophets, there are some structural things. There are some cadence. There's just some aspects that make it a very unique book. And I think it will be very helpful in the life of our church because of what it deals with. And specifically what the book of Malachi addresses is how the people of God are supposed to approach God in worship. What is necessary, what does God require for his people as we consider worshiping the God who made us, sustains us, has chosen us, cares for us, all of these things in mind, what is the response of the child of God to him? And so in order to help us with this a little bit, we've made available out on the resource table these books called What Happens When We Worship. Now, this is written by Jonathan Landry Cruz, who Josh was out at his church in Michigan this past fall doing the Reformation hymn sing out there. But the reason that I chose to offer this book for this series is because they both deal with these parallel realities, In the book, What Happens When We Worship, Cruz goes through every aspect of corporate worship and explains what is the biblical basis of this. What are we doing when we come together to worship as a body? So I know there's an aspect where we could say, well, all of life is worship. Romans 12, right? Yes and amen to that. But what Malachi is dealing with and what Cruz is dealing with in the book is corporate worship. What are you doing here? What do we do and why do we do it when we come together as a church? And so I really encourage you to pick up a book. It's not a commentary on Malachi, but it deals with many of the same things that we are going to see over the coming weeks as we study the book of Malachi. So pick one up. They're on the back table there. And I think it'll be really, really helpful as we move through this book together. So before we get into our text and take a little bit of an overview, let's pause and ask the Lord to be with us and to help us in our understanding. So would you pray for me and with me? Father, we praise you for the preservation of your word. And I thank you, Lord, that throughout the ages, your word has stood the test of time. No other book could withstand the kind of scrutiny and attack and attempted undermining and survive But this is no other book, this is your book and it is your word. And so as we come today, we humble ourselves before you and we ask, Lord, that you would use this time in our church to teach us what you require, to teach us what you desire from your people, not only the external things that are visible, the the giving and the service and the sacrifice and these kinds of things, but you want our hearts And I just pray, Lord, that you, through your word and through your spirit, would change us into the kind of people who come anticipating meeting with you on a Sunday morning. This is a unique time. We can never repeat this time. And so, God, give us grace to understand your word. Give us grace not only to understand it, but then to put it into practice. What good is knowledge without action? So God, come. Be our teacher. Show us your word in all of its splendor and glory. And as has already been prayed and talked about this morning, let your word have full effect. To the end that in everything we do and say, Jesus Christ would be praised. And it is in his name that I pray now. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, what I want to do is give a brief overview of where we are when we come to the book of Malachi. So these last three books of the Old Testament are somewhat chronological. They are contemporaries in a sense, and the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah precipitate in some ways or or cause the need for Malachi to write what he writes and for God to communicate what he communicates here. So we're going to take just a moment and talk about what has happened up to the start of the book of Malachi. So if you remember back from the fall, we covered some of this information. The people of Israel had disobeyed God. They turned their back on him. They did not listen to him any longer. They did not walk in his ways. And as a result of God's covenant keeping faithfulness, he brings judgment on his people, just as he has promised to do. So Babylon comes in and removes the people of Israel and takes them back to Babylon into exile. Gone is the temple worship. Gone is the priestly office. Gone is the structures that they are familiar with as far as bringing a sacrifice to God and worshiping him as they have been commanded. All of that's gone. And for 70 years, they are in Babylon. Well, what goes around comes around in the kings of the world and eventually Babylon is overthrown by the king of Persia. Persia overthrows Babylon and looks around and sees all of these exiles that are in the city of Babylon. And this was not just Jewish people. They had conquered many nations and taken many peoples back to Babylon. And Persia says, we don't need all these people here. They're using up our resources. They're drinking our water. They're just in the way. Send them back to their homes. They can pay taxes from there. They can bring tribute from there. Get them out of here. So they issue a decree sending all of the exiles back to their homelands, which includes the people of God. So God's people return to Jerusalem with fresh inspiration, fresh motivation, because not only are they allowed to return, but they're allowed to rebuild the temple, which is just the, the center of the Jewish religion, right? And so they come back and they start building and they're just renewed in this and they're going full steam and then boom, things peter up. They lose interest. And the real problem wasn't just that they lost interest. The problem was that they no longer cared as much about God and his dwelling and his presence as they did with their own needs. If you remember this from Haggai, his indictment against the people of Israel, against God's people, was that the temple of God sat unfinished while they all dwelt in these really fancy, swanky homes. This was a problem. Not because of the physical structures, but because it showed what was going on in the people's heart. They cared more for their own needs Than they did for the temple of the Lord, for his presence. So that's the problem that's going on. So God raises up these men, Haggai and Zechariah, and he raises them up as prophets so that he can communicate to the people what he desires from them. And as we saw, God is a God of covenant. And so what he does is he's not calling his people to some initial action, something they've never heard about. He is calling them to renew the terms of the covenant. Come back to me. Come back, come back, come back. So Haggai's ministry is all about the physical temple. You remember this? The people have waned, they have stopped caring about the temple, and Haggai's whole purpose is to say, come on, get with it, keep up the work, finish this project. So he motivates the people, and God motivates through him. Now, Zechariah's ministry deals largely with the spiritual renewal that was necessary. If God, according to the terms of his covenant, is going to return to his people and dwell with them and all the blessings of the presence of God are going to come with. Something needs to happen because, what did we see? The people had defiled themselves with sin. And God will not and cannot dwell side by side with sin. Something needed to happen. So Zechariah's ministry was largely to call the people back to spiritual renewal. To a place where they understood it's not just about this physical structure. That is a representation of what's going on here. So Zechariah calls them back and we see all of these tremendous images. Remember Zechariah 3, when we see Joshua the high priest clothed in dirty garments representing the people who had defiled themselves with sin and the promise of God is that he is going to remove the sin of the people which is represented by the dirty shirt so he takes that off of him and he clothes him with a pure garment. Telling the people, if you will come back to the covenant, if you will walk in my ways and obey my commandments, I'm going to deal with this. And we see that he promises to deal with this through one person, the branch, the servant, the cornerstone, who we saw is the Messiah. So Zechariah's ministry is looking forward to a promised Messiah, a prophet, priest, and king who would deliver the people from their sins. One of the places said, God is going to remove the sins of the people in a single day, referencing the atonement of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So all of this stuff is going on. The people do what they always do. It's, oh, they get all excited about something, and then it kind of fades down. And, oh, they get reminded, and they they get real fervent again, and they work really hard, and then it kind of laxes, and they go back to doing what they always do. And they expected... That this person that Zechariah was talking about, this, this king, this, this powerful figure, would come immediately. So they're kind of looking around, and when that doesn't happen, they lose interest. And the people of God did what the people of God do best. You know what that was? They forgot. Unfortunately, that's the case. And not just with post-exilic Jews in 516 B.C., but with us. The tendency for the children of God is to forget what God has done in the past. And and part of my desire in going through these somewhat obscure books in the Old Testament is so that we understand it is our responsibility to never forget All throughout the Psalms, for example, we see, remember, remember, remember the works of the Lord, declare the works of the Lord, consider the works of the Lord. This is all so that we don't forget what God has done and find ourselves in a situation where we're really in trouble. But this is where the people were. Between their own sin and the influence of the nations around them, the the apathy of the priests and all of this stuff that was going on, things were a mess, in fact, it had gotten so bad that we're going to see uh, in a couple weeks, God tells the people, I wish there was someone who would just shut the doors. Don't even come in here. If you come into this house with that heart, it's not going to go well. And God says, oh, that there was someone that would just shut the doors. This was a mess. This was a mess of a situation. And keep in mind, this is not that long after the rebuilding of the temple. Years, maybe, 10, 15 years. Not long but the people had forgotten what God requires them. And into this mess steps a man named Malachi. Temple worship is chaotic. The priests, rather than leading the people out of sin, kind of facilitate sin by this dishonesty in their offerings, by accepting blemished sacrifices, by encouraging people to be dishonest in their giving and their tithing. God doesn't need that. You need it more. All this kind of wickedness going on. And here comes Malachi, the mouthpiece of God. Now we know virtually nothing about him except for his name. There is no pedigree, there's no accolades, there's no heritage given for him. It is just Malachi. Now his name means my messenger. And that's exactly what he is. He is bringing a message to the people to come back to the Lord, to renew the sense of honesty and of intentionality in their worship to stop playing around with this. I think one of the points of the fact that there's just no biographical information about this guy is because he's not the point. It doesn't matter what family he came from, who his dad was. It doesn't matter what tribe he was from. What matters is the message. And that's what we're to see when we see no other information about Malachi. We are to understand, okay, doesn't matter, it's not about him. This is what the Lord wants us to understand. Now, I want to talk for just a moment about the structure and the style of this book. I already mentioned there's a couple of unique things, and I think one of the things that make it unique is the method in which he communicates. So, Peter tells us in 2 Peter that the Holy Spirit is moving through Malachi communicating with him, right? This is how the books of the Bible are written, that the Holy Spirit carries these men along as they write the word. So God is communicating through Malachi and he uses this really interesting way of communication. He uses something called the dialectic method. Now, I don't think Malachi would have known that's what it was because that word probably wasn't around. But this is a specific way of teaching something. So here's an example. Rather than a teacher just stating a conclusion or saying, here's what you need to think. Here's the conclusion you should arrive at. In the dialectic method, questions are stacked and stacked and stacked on top of each other so that the right conclusion comes from within the hearer, from within the student. Okay, rather than just telling you, you need to do this and this to be right with God, God asks all of these questions, the answers to which then form the truth that he wants them to know. Does that make sense? So this is called the dialectic method, and we see it as the dominant way of communication in the book of Malachi. In the first three chapters, there are 23 questions asked. These questions are asked to elicit a response, to make the people think, and mostly it follows this kind of statement. There's a, there's a statement made, then there's, a, there's an objection ...to that statement, either in the form of a question or otherwise, and then the answer follows. So this is kind of this three-step thing that we see all through the book of Malachi. And if we have that framework in your mind, it'll just help understand as we move through this. And as I was looking at all of these kind of detailed things this week, I thought, ...this is a great example of the various ways in which God communicates to his people. This is different, Right? This is a different way of communicating than the Psalms or than an epistle or uh, some other places in the prophetic language. This is different. Why? So that we get it. <laughs> Can you imagine if there's just one way of writing? One way of understanding? i sorry if you don't get it. That's your fault. This is the way it's communicated. No. God communicates in a variety of ways. Dialectic method, direct instruction, poetry, prophecy, All these kinds of things so that his people get his words, that they understand it. That's his goal. God doesn't want to confuse you with the Bible. He wants you to know it. So he uses all of these kinds of ways of communication. I think it's just a great example of the diversity that we see in the writing of the scriptures. But even though the writing style is unique and different methods are used, the message is the same. It is the same message that Haggai brought, the same message that Zechariah brought. It's exactly what we see in Malachi. Return to me. Come back to me. Stop forgetting what I've done for you and come back to me. Now, this reinforcement of this word, come back to me, this this idea of, restoring the covenant nature of the relationship between God and his people tells us something about God, doesn't it? As we read through this book and as we study through this book, we are going to see the covenant faithfulness of God in a unique way. Now, we already saw that in these last two books, but this is a unique way. God is going to call the people back not only just to a, to a broad understanding of the covenant he has made with them, but he's going to reference in this letter the covenant of Levi as he addresses the priests. He's going to talk about the covenant of Moses as he talks about the law, the covenant of marriage, and so on and so on. And all of this covenantal language is meant to remind us and the original readers that God is a God of covenant. You guys remember what a covenant is, right? It's an agreement between two parties. And if one of the parties breaks terms, if they do not follow what has been previously agreed upon, there is consequences to that. We understand this kind of relationship. Think about a marriage covenant. We call marriage a covenant because two people get together, a man and a woman, and they covenant together that we are going to conduct ourselves this way. We are going to interact in these specific ways. And if one of those members is unfaithful, if they break the covenant somehow, there is and there should be consequences to that. So we understand the terms of covenant, right? Now Malachi in this letter is operating under the assumption that the people know the covenant. This isn't new information, but he is reminding them. He's calling them back to something that they already knew. Okay, So he's not going to build on every single detail of covenantal relationship because the people already know this. But he is going to call them to return. Specifically, God wants his people to return to a right understanding of who he is and what he requires of his people. He calls them to a right practice of worship, that they would approach God in humility And genuine worship, enough of this external uh, doing it for the show of things. God's not interested in that. He's interested in the genuine article, the motivation of a person's heart. He's going to call them back to write relationships in their marriages, in the covenant community. It's all a call to return to the Lord. And it's not just for these people, it's for us. It is so easy, isn't it, to just take a couple steps to the left or a couple steps to the right. And before you know it, what was I supposed to be doing again? What does God require? And this book is going to call us back to the Lord. I'm not under the assumption that every one of us is some stiff-necked, wayward, rebellious person. Maybe with a couple exceptions. But we need to be called back. We need to be brought back to the center. What does God require of us? This is time well spent. And this is what we're going to do now over the next few weeks. Now, seeing how much attention is given to worship and the priesthood and sacrifices and giving, we can see that this letter is written after the completion of the temple. So the temple is completed in 516 B.C., And this is probably written around 500, okay? There was enough time passed here that this was still in operations, but things had gotten really loosey-goosey. So that's about the time frame of where we're dealing with. So that's the general background. That's the overview of how we get now to the first verse of Malachi. So open your Bible, if you have not done so yet, and we will read this hefty text together as we begin. If you don't know where Malachi is, just go to Matthew in the New Testament, back up one book to the left, and you'll be in Malachi, right about in the middle of your Bible, Eh, almost two-thirds. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, similar to the Psalms, Malachi includes what we would see as a superscription. That's what verse 1 is. Now, a superscription is kind of like an editorial comment. It's informing the reader what's going on, gives a little context, tells who the author is and perhaps even how this writing should be used or handled. Now, I say it's similar in Malachi because it includes some of those things, but it also exceeds a normal superscription, because it tells us not only the identity of the author, but it tells us the authority of the author, and that's what we're going to get into here for the rest of our time together. So, in Malachi 1.1, this superscription, we see it legitimizes the prophet as a divine messenger. See, no one is interested in just people's opinions. At least we ought not to be as the people of God. Opinions can be helpful. It's the lens through which we see things. But ultimately, what we are concerned with is the truthfulness of the word. What does God say? And so if Malachi would have just come to the people and said, Hey, I got some ideas. Why don't you all gather around and I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Why would they listen to that? There's no authority in that. But there's authority in the word of God. And there's authority in the words of God. And so that's what's being communicated here, that this message, this burden, is from the Lord. Now let's look more closely at this verse, because I want to show you how I can come to that conclusion, how you can see that too. The word oracle is the word weight, or burden, more accurately, oftentimes translated as that. And what this communicates to us, among other things, is that the office of prophet, the role that the prophets played in the history of Israel was not easy. It was no light thing to be a prophet, to be a mouthpiece of God, to deliver a message to the people of God. When a man stood up in front of the people of God and publicly called out sin, specific behaviors areas of worship and conduct and relationship that needed to be adjusted. No one likes that. No one likes their sin to be magnified and exposed, especially in public, but that was the job of the prophets primarily. They brought the word of the Lord to bear on the covenant community of Israel so that they would know what they needed to do, where they had fallen short, and how they could come back to a right relationship with God. But it was not a popular thing. It was a weighty thing. It, it bore down on the shoulders of the man for whom God had chosen. And I just get such a kick out of the fact that there are people nowadays that designate themselves prophets. And when I say get a kick out of I mean it frustrates me. For one thing, you don't designate yourself a prophet God assigns that role to you. In fact, do you remember even some of the examples of the prophets we see? They didn't even want the job sometimes. Remember Jonah? You know the story of Jonah. He gets on a ship and heads the other way because he wants nothing to do with this burden of the word of the Lord. Elijah, same thing. He runs into the desert because he has to say the truth to Ahab and to Jezebel. He says, no, I don't want anything to do with that. But those guys could not refuse the work of the Lord any more than they could have manufactured it. This was a calling of God specifically on the life of these prophets. And this is where the weight comes from. This is where the burden comes from. The second thing that I think is just ridiculous about calling yourself a prophet is look at the message. I don't know if you guys get into this at all or have bumped into this, but the people now who call themselves prophets so-and-so or whatever... Their message is radically different than what we see in the scriptures. Malachi is not coming to the people with a positive and uplifting message that he just wants to encourage them with. He's not teaching them how they could gain more wealth or have a nicer car or get rid of their problems. It's not there. Nobody's clicking on Malachi's YouTube video about how you've offended God in five easy steps. This not popular. So I just, I, just can't, I just can't wrap my mind around the fact that there are people who are self-designating themselves as prophets, as foolishness. God established that office. And it was a weight. And it was a burden. And why was it a weight and a burden? It's because of the content of the message. When these men brought the message of the Lord to the people... The reason that it was so weighty was because of what they were saying. I mean, as we get into the book, we're going to see some pretty, pretty clear indictments. Okay, this is not just a suggestion. It's not like, I've heard that possibly there was someone in the community who might be doing such and such. Nope, God just says, you've done this, that is wrong, here's what you need to do. And so Malachi stands before the people, his people and he calls out their sin. How do you think that's going to go? I mean, how are the people going to respond? We're going to see them respond in the next couple of weeks with indignation. Who are you to tell us what to do? How have we done that? You say we've offended God. How have we offended God? And who are you by the way, Malachi? You're one of us. What gives you the right to stand up there and tell us we've screwed up? We need to come back to the Lord. This was the responsibility. This is what made the prophetic office so weighty. This is why it is called the burden of the word of the Lord. It came with great cost. There are some really interesting circumstances around the prophets in the Old Testament. The things that God had them do. And if you want to know some of those, talk to me after the service. There's just some really bizarre things. This was not an easy calling. It was a weight because of what it was and because of what they were called to say. But this is also why a true prophet of God does not emphasize the fact that he is anything other than a mouthpiece. The prophets do not call attention to themselves, which is another difference. They call attention to the message that God had given them. Now, I am not a prophet. Not in the sense that Malachi or any of the Old Testament prophets were. But there is a similarity in what a preacher does and what a prophet did. Here's the similarity, and then I'll tell you the difference. The similarity is that my responsibility as a preacher is to take the word of God and deliver it to the people of God. You see that similarity? I think we can agree on that. The dissimilarity or the difference is I do not have direct revelation I do not have the hotline to heaven, or however you want to call it. What we have is the Word of God. And so my job as a preacher is to take this Word, the Word of God, and give it to you, the people of God, for your benefit, your encouragement, your repentance, your faith, your sustaining, your perseverance, and your salvation. And it is not always easy to stand in the pulpit and call you and me to repentance. To point out specific sins that we struggle with. To bring conviction to bear through the word of God and the spirit of God on our lives. Now I'm not equating myself with Malachi. I'm not saying, oh, woe is me, I feel this weight. But it is there. When the word of God is faithfully preached, there is a weight There is a burden that comes with that, but it is what is required of faithful preachers and faithful prophets in Malachi's day. So there's similarity, right? We understand this. Malachi is bringing this message that is basically if you don't come back to the Lord, if you don't repent, you're going to experience the full weight of the covenant consequences, which have already been established. This is a burden. It was the burden of the word of the Lord. Now the last thing that we'll see in this superscription is found in those last two words of verse 1, by Malachi. Now depending on your translation, the verse might read the oracle of the word of the Lord through Malachi or by the ministry of Malachi or something like that. What the, what the manuscripts say, is that they use a Hebrew idiom which says by the hand of by the hand of Malachi. And what that tells us is it tells us where the authority comes from. And here's how it does that. You guys know what an idiom is? An idiom is a is a phrase or a saying. It's a collection of words that have a different meaning than what it appears to have. So let me give you an example in English. If I were to say to you, "Oh, it's raining cats and dogs." What do I mean? It's raining really hard, right? That's what we understand that to me. It's pouring down rain. I don't mean there's felines and canines falling from the sky. That is an idiom. It is a collection of words meant to communicate something else. So in Hebrew, this idiom, by the hand of, meant you have received something from someone else and you are now passing that thing on to somebody. So when this says the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by the hand of Malachi, the original hearers would have heard, this isn't Malachi's message. He received this from the Lord and is now passing this on to us. Does that make sense? And I think that helps in our understanding of the authority by which Malachi speaks. He did not invent this message. If he did, he's kind of a fool because this is not the kind of message you would want to invent on your own he received it the hand of the Lord gave it to him and he now by his hand as it were delivers it to the people of God by the hand of Malachi and what that tells us like I said is that this message is legitimate it is authoritative it is not the production of man it is the word of God So everything that we're going to see in the following four chapters, all of the little nuanced details and instructions and corrections and all these things is not Jacob talking to you. It is not Malachi talking to you. It is God speaking to you. This message comes from God. So that's the setup. That's the overview. And I wanted to take a whole week just to set this up because As we get into this book, we are going to see some things that are going to be really helpful, really helpful for us as far as marking us as participants in the covenant community, as far as giving us boundaries and instructions for how we are to come to God. And it helps for us to understand the background and the context of what is going on that caused the Lord to bring this message to his people through Malachi, the lessons that we are going to learn by God's grace and the instruction we will receive is going to be so helpful. And at some point in this series, I haven't decided when this will be, but I do want to take a week and just talk about specifically our worship here at Grace and what we do and the motivations behind it because you come and we all participate in what we're doing, but do you understand what is behind that, what is underneath that? What is it that produces what you see on a Sunday morning. And we want you to understand that it is the word of God. It is not the invention of man. It is not the most popular trending thing right now. But it is according to the scriptures. So at some point, we will take a week, wherever it seems prudent, and talk about that. So, we're done with the introduction. And what I want to do now, as we close, before we come to the table, is just to spend an extended time of prayer with you we pray a lot in the church. But I want us just to pray together and ask the Lord that he would use this time to instruct us and encourage us and grow us together. So, would you bow with me and let's close by praying together. Lord, we are so very thankful that in your wisdom... You have preserved for us this word, and we are thankful, Lord, that you do not leave us without instruction. We, we don't have to manufacture our own ideas or come up with our own thoughts, but in your word, you have given us all that we need for life and for godliness through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as our church now spends the next few months looking at this book of Malachi, I ask that you would produce in us a desire for worship, that you would give us a longing to come together as your people to prepare ourselves properly, to anticipate meeting with you and with your people every week. God, we are so thankful for the grace and the blessings that you have shown to this local church by providing for us a place to meet, by bringing faithful brothers and sisters who participate in the work of the ministry here. All of this is a demonstration of your faithfulness. It is not our own doing. And so we praise you for this, God. Our desire is to be a church that not only knows true things about you, that's important, but God, we wanna be a church that puts that knowledge into practice in observable ways Jesus, while you were on earth, you said we should let our light shine before others that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And so as we gather and worship together, as we sing and we hear the word preached and we hear the word read and we hear the word sung, God, work it into our hearts. Make us a people who are hungry for the satisfaction that only comes through your world, your word. There are so many distractions. There are so many things to pull us away, but God, give us faithfulness. I pray that as a result of this study, Lord, that you would knit our hearts together closely, that we would recognize the brotherhood that exists within the body of Christ, that we would be faithful to encourage and support and give exhortation where needed, Lord, that we would be humble before you and before one another. There is much to be thankful for. There is much to bring to you in requests. And we praise you that because of Christ, you hear us when we pray. So Lord, I commit this sermon series to you, this book of Malachi. Please do with it everything that you have intended. Make our hearts soft to receive your word. And in everything we say and do, may Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name that I pray, amen.